in our culture today, it seems that loyalty is really quite rare. Very often we see either a, a complete lack of loyalty or, or loyalties that quickly change. We see this from both employers and employees. Just a couple of generations ago, it wasn't unusual for someone to, to work for the same company their entire career, loyal throughout. But now, so often, we move around from job to job, year to year. Likewise, also employers. Sometimes the people want to stay a long time. They're unwilling to continue down the path. And so, so on both sides, there's so often a lack of loyalty. We see this often in collegiate and professional sports as coaches and players move around from team to team. Back when we had a professional baseball team here in Boston, it used to be scandalous. For, for a player to move from the Red Sox to the Yankees 25 years ago was scandalous because of the loyalties of that. And yet today it would be no big thing. We see it also in politics. As we'll see in, in both parties, a, a politician who says, this is the person. You should only vote for this person. It's the only person I can imagine in this role. And then two days later, they'll be seen at a press conference saying, no, no, this is the person all along that I've been for. Switching loyalties back and forth again and again. And so it's easy to wonder, is anyone loyal? Is there any value in loyalty? So are we ourselves loyal? And will anyone truly be loyal to us? Can we count on anyone to truly be faithful to us? Some of that we'll explore this morning in our text today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel chapter 20. Today will be in 1 Samuel 20, uh, beginning in verse 1. You can find it in the Bibles near you on page 243. Page 243. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app, just so you can follow along as we're going to read a sizable portion of the text. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open up the larger numbers of the chapter numbers, we're in chapter 20. The smaller numbers are verse numbers. We'll start in verse 1. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table that says free Bibles on it, a stack of Bibles. Please just grab one of those, take it with you this morning as our gift to you. So today we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel that we're calling In Search of a King. And last week you saw this young man, David, who's now emerging as a key player in this book, growing in popularity and success. In previous chapters, he had been secretly anointed as the next king of Israel, although the current king, Saul, was still reigning. David then had defeated Goliath, this great triumph, saving his nation. And now more and more people celebrate David and his success is known, his popularity grows. And, and this has been a great threat to King Saul. We also saw a deep friendship between David and Jonathan. Jonathan, Saul's son committed in loyal love for David to, to walk with him in a covenant relationship. In fact, Jonathan had even symbolically laid down his own weapons and given his robe to David, acknowledging David as the one true anointed future king of Israel. But as David's success grew, Saul's uh, envy and jealousy of David grew so that, so that we saw Saul seeking to have David killed and then he himself even pursuing David at the end of the text last week, he himself coming to kill David, but God had powerfully, supernaturally intervened so that David could escape. And that's where we pick it up today, chapter 20 in verse 1. 
Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. He thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come you, would I not tell you? Then, Jonathan sa- then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, Behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then sin to disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. And Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed. Because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. Behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them and you're to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go. For the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean, surely he is not clean. 
On the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? But Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to, not, me to be there. So now, if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. So Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the fields with appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of that matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained from the Lord. His name was Doag, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, 
whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take that, take it, for there is none but that here. David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior from before him and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who's in distress, everyone who's in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hareth. I think we'll just stop it. No, I'm just kidding. This morning in this lengthy passage, we'll see this emphasis. Embrace the costly path of following the one and true faithful king. Embrace the costly path of following the one true and faithful king. And we'll look at our passage in just two parts. So first we'll see the threatening king. And the second we'll see the threatened king. So the threatening king and the threatened king. So first we see the threatened, threatening king in chapter 20. Verses 1 to 42. So last week we saw that David was in danger. Saul had come to try to kill him, and, and David flees. But strangely now, David actually flees back to Saul's home. Because he wants to come back and talk to his friend Jonathan because he has a very substantial question for his closest friend. And the question is this. Look at verse 1. What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? For it's clear that Saul wants to kill David, but what David didn't know is why. He keeps trying to kill me in any number of ways, but what have I done? What is the purpose of this? Now Jonathan responds to David that this, it can't be true that his father is trying to kill him. We saw last week that Saul had informed Jonathan and his servants that he wanted David killed, but, but Jonathan had responded with a really persuasive answer so much so that Saul swore that he wouldn't try to kill Jonathan. So that's the last that Jonathan knows, is that his father has, has sworn he won't do it. But apparently Jonathan's been kept in the dark, what we saw last week at the end, which again, Saul himself even, had gone to try to kill David. So David explains to Jonathan what's actually been going on, that, and that Jonathan just doesn't know. So David suggests a plan. He said, here's a plan, and, and by this plan we'll find out if he does want to kill me or if he doesn't. So there would be this festival where, where normally there would be a banquet in Saul's house and David, as a part of that, the household now, would be serving there and he would be at the table. And so David says, I'm, not going, I'm going to hide out and I won't be there. 
And if when I'm gone, Saul says, well, good. It's good that he went to a, a festival back at his, at his home for uh, a sacrifice there. Then that's fine. Then that would be proof that, in fact, Saul isn't trying to kill him. But if Saul is angry, that would be proof that Saul was, in fact, after David's life. David reminded Jonathan as well that this covenant that they had made. That's where we saw the, the depth of friendship. This covenant commitment that they made, this loyalty to one another. And David said to Jonathan, look, if you know that I'm guilty, I wish that you would just kill me yourself. Don't take me to your father. And of course, Jonathan said, well, that, well that, there's no way. That I would never do that. His father's not going to try to harm him either. So they further devised this plan. David hides and doesn't attend the meal on the first day. Saul notices, but he doesn't think anything of it. He thinks in some way, perhaps David is ceremonially unclean, and so that's why David isn't there. But on the second day, David again was absent. And we see that Saul asked Jonathan, where is he? Where is the son of Jesse? Why isn't he here? And Jonathan explained, as they had agreed, that David needed to go back to his home of Bethlehem for, for a family sacrifice. And we see in verse 30 that Saul's anger, now not only at David, but now is kindled towards Jonathan. He says of Jonathan, he's, he's chosen David over his father to his own shame, to the shame of his family, to the shame of his mother. And then verse 31, look at verse 31. Saul says to Jonathan, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. For Jonathan is the, the heir to the throne. Jonathan then responds by, by asking, well, why should David be put to death? Instead of receiving an answer, Jonathan receives a spear thrown at him. Just as he had thrown a spear multiple times at David, now he throws the spear at Jonathan. So Jonathan went out, he gave the signal that had been agreed upon, and then he and David met. And we see in the text this moving scene as these two loyal friends wept together as the reality of the situation weighed them down. It's become clear that, in fact, David will now have to live on the run. They're not sure if they'll ever see each other again. It seems unlikely that they would, and so they say goodbye. Jonathan encouraging David to go in peace because of this covenant they've made for one another, and David departs. Jonathan returns. We saw last week that Jonathan, although he was heir to Saul's throne, has chosen, rather than waiting for his own kingdom, pursuing his own kingdom as, as the king after Saul, instead, he's choosing to embrace David to cast his lot, to place his loyalty on David, David as the future king. That's what we'd seen, that they entered into a covenant together in chapter 18, verse 3 and 4. And Jonathan had already last week handed over his robe to David, as well as his sword, his belt, all of this, a symbolic act of Jonathan saying, I'm the crown prince, but I, I give these over to you, for you will be instead the future king. Jonathan was caught between these two kingdoms. The current kingdom of his father, Saul, and the coming kingdom of David. One kingdom for Jonathan promised safety, wealth, power, 
understanding himself as the future king. The other king, though, would in fact prove to be costly. In fact, it would cost Jonathan everything, his own safety, even his family relationships. And yet Jonathan chose not the kingdom of safety, not, not, not the kingdom that would provide for him power and wealth, but instead chooses the costly kingdom of David. He did make a request of David. Look in verse 14. Jonathan says to David, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. In the world of that day, the normal pattern when a, a new king from a different family took over is they would typically eliminate, kill the entire dynasty before them. The, the, all the other heirs, everyone who potentially could have arisen from that line. And so David is saying, Jonathan is asking David, would you commit to me if I'm still alive when you become king? And if I'm not, will you commit to my family? Now later, when David does take the throne, Jonathan will have died. But we'll see in 2 Samuel chapter 9 that David actually is faithful to this. He intentionally seeks out. Are there any in the line of Jonathan alive? And there is this one, Mephibosheth, that we'll see that David brings into his own home as his, his loyalty, his commitment to his covenant with Jonathan. As we watch the story play out today, we, we see in Jonathan a picture of what every person faces. We find ourselves living, needing to make a choice between two different kingdoms. A kingdom of our own making that, that we might spend our lives trying to cultivate, where we have authority. Although our kingdom may be small, we, we have authority over it, where we have choices within it, or we may align ourselves with some kingdom of this world, or the other alternative is the kingdom of the anointed one, Jesus Christ. We face the choice which kingdom we place our trust in? Which one we hope in for eternity? The kingdom, the powers of this world, a kingdom of our own making, or the kingdom of Jesus, the king who came not to throw a spear, but is that who would be pierced with a spear while hanging on a cross, hanging on that cross to provide salvation as a gift to any and all who would trust in him and be brought into his eternal Jonathan asked of David that David would show to him steadfast love. My friend, Jesus the king is, is so much greater that we don't have to ask him for his love. For in fact, he came in love. He came pursuing us out of love. And he is forever committed to his people in that love. He has promised he will never let us go. But if you're a Christian, he will never leave you nor forsake you. My friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here today. And I wonder who or what are you ultimately trusting in or living for? I'm using the category of kingdom. You, you probably don't think of it in exactly those terms, but whose rule do you live under or what do you live committing yourself to? We'd love for you to know this gracious king, he's a king unlike any other, who came not to take from us but to give to us. In fact, 
to give himself for us. Friends, for those who are Christians, Jonathan in our, ta- in our passage today is a picture of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. For we now today still live between these two kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world always continue to live in opposition to Jesus and sometimes more overtly than otherwise. And friends, as we identify with Jesus, it is and always will be costly to follow him. Jesus said that it would be. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and following. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, loses or forfeits himself? That's what we do as we follow Jesus. We follow him in a costly life. We also see that as Saul was angry at Jonathan, he began to treat Jonathan as he had treated David. He hated David. He threw his spear at David again and again. And now he's angry. He hates Jonathan, throwing his spear at him, treating him just like David, the anointed one. Jesus cautioned his disciples that if we're loyal to Jesus, we will be treated in this world like Jesus was treated. Here's what Jesus says in John 15, verses 18 to 20. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, me, they will persecute you. Friends, Jesus tells us that to follow him, to embrace his kingdom is, always will be costly. And simultaneously, it is good. It's the wisest decision we can make. So instead of embracing our own kingdom, building our own kingdom, embracing another kingdom, to say, I will trust in Jesus, though it may cost everything. For he gives so much more. He gives life. His presence now, life in his kingdom for eternity. And true life is found in hoping in, trusting in the one loyal king, Jesus. So we see the threatening king. And then as the story moves on, we see second, the threatened king in chapter 21 through the end of our passage. We see after this tearful farewell, Jonathan returns, but David flees. And he goes to a place called Nob. And there he encounters a priest named Ahimelech. Now this is where the tabernacle was at this time. This this tent that God had ordained for God's people to be able to uniquely Engage and worship him. The, the, the ark was not there, but the other functions of the tabernacle were happening here. So this priest by the name of Ahimelech was there. And when David arrives, the priest comes out to meet him. And we notice the priest comes out and he's, he's fearful. He's trembling. And he asks why David is alone. As we've seen, David is very well known now. He's a hero. He's successful. And so normally he travels with an army now because he's often going out into battle. And so here Jonathan, or, or David shows up by himself. The priest is wondering what's going on. It's also possible that, that word has traveled and Ahimelech has 
maybe heard something at least of the conflict between Saul and David. And so he's wondering what's going on. David answers him, trying to calm his fears, and he tells Ahimelech that, he, that he's on a secret mission for King Saul, which, which we know is sort of overing the story. That's not the case. Perhaps David thought that by telling him this, it might convince Ahimelech to help him. It also could be that, that David is being gracious, and he, he wants to give Ahimelech an explanation that he could use with others. To, in essence, give Ahimelech a form of kind of plausible deniability for his helping David. See, well, David told me this is what he's doing. David asked Ahimelech to help him with food as he asked for bread. David, and it seems he has some men with him, are hungry and they're without food. But Ahimelech explains to him that they don't have any common bread. They don't have any, except they do have this holy bread, which is special bread used in the worship of God in the tabernacle. Typically, the priest would not give this to anyone else. But here he's agreeable to do that. It says, as long as David and his men were consecrated, and David says that they were. Jesus, if you remember back in Matthew, speaks of this episode. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And Jesus makes clear that the spirit of the law that, that governed this is for mercy. And what's happening here is David is being shown mercy by the priest Ahimelech by, by sharing this needed bread with him. We also, as you're following along, we see this strange kind of passing mention, this guy named Doeg the Edomite. He's only named, but then nothing, nothing else, but, which probably raises our you know, radar, like, who is this? Why is this here? And, and we'll find out next week as we continue in the passage. David not only asked for bread, though, he also asked for a weapon from the priest. So do you have a sword here? Do you have a spear here? David explains he, he doesn't have a weapon, he's gone on a secret mission, he had to go so quickly, which again just seems strange. If you're on a mission for the king, likely you would take your best weapon, and yet David says he has none. The priest says, well, we only have one weapon, but it's the sword of Goliath. If you recall, Goliath was this, you know, incredibly tall man, strong, huge weapons, and so his sword as well was unlike any other sword. So there is a weapon, but only one, but it's Goliath's. And so David takes this unique sword. Now, as we watch this play out, I, I think we're left with the question, well, what are we to make of David's actions? Because we're seeing this story play out. David is not being fully honest here. This is one of the places where we often see in the scriptures where the Bible describes actions for us, but doesn't commend them to us. Here it neither condemns David nor justifies him. It's just not the interest of the, the narrator here to explain whether this was right or wrong or why this might be. It simply shows it to us. But we're wise as we read the Bible to say not everything we see described in the Bible is being prescribed to us, that we should follow it in that way. We've said often throughout 1 Samuel that David is, is a pointer to the, the future greater king, Jesus. Jesus is sinless, without sin in every way. But we also want to be clear, David, the pointer, was not without sin. We don't believe he is sinless. So, so it doesn't disturb us, it doesn't surprise us when David sins because we understand it to be true of every single person. So he's fleeing here because of Saul the king. 
So he's in very real danger. So it's, it's not an irrational fear. And yet David's response to legitimate danger seems to be questionable. He goes to the right place, to the tabernacle, to the priest of God. But when he goes there, apparently he's not going there primarily to ask, ask the priest to pray for him, which would seem to be a, a good first step. I'm desperate. The king is after me. I'm going to go and have the priest pray for me. That doesn't seem to be the leading thought for David. David doesn't pursue the means that God had provided. Instead, he, he chooses the best plans that he himself can come up with. And his plans in his fear include, at the very least, misleading Ahimelech. And then he takes the sword of Goliath. On the one hand, that, that seems to be a good move. If you need a weapon, why not take the very best weapon? But if you remember back when David fought Goliath in chapter 17, David had said, the Lord saves not with sword or spear. David himself had no sword, but won the victory with only a stone. Was David now going to trust in the sword? And not just any sword, but the impressive and powerful sword of Goliath. God had promised David already that he would be made king. But now in his fear, he's tempted to make his own way. And so it can be for us. In our own fear, it can be so very tempting to doubt God's promises to us, his people. And so very tempting to take matters into our own hands. To use the world's methods at best. And sometimes to just choose truly ungodly, sinful methods. Sometimes even justifying it in our mind because we think the end is good. And so we choose means that are sinful in order to achieve those. And yet we do still see that God faithfully provides for David. Even perhaps in spite of his actions, he's provided bread and a weapon. David receives mercy, provision. For our God is so kind, gracious, faithful, loyal to his people. David then continues on the run to, to Gath, we see in verse 10. And this seems like a very odd plan because Gath is a Philistine city. But not just a Philistine, their enemy city, but it's the city of Goliath who David had killed. And David's not just going to Gath, the city of Goliath, but he's showing up with David's sword in hand, I mean, with Goliath's sword in hand. Somehow it seems to David that he thought this would be a place of refuge for him. And maybe in his mind he's thinking, well, the Philistines are enemies of King Saul, so the enemy of my enemy is my friend perhaps, and so maybe if I show up there, they will shelter me. And probably normally that might be the case, except David is forgetting a very important part of the story, that the reason there are such mortal enemies currently of Philistines is because of David. David is the one who killed Goliath, their champion. And here he shows up. The king of Gath, Achish's men, recognized David. They, they understood who he was. They'd even heard the popular song we saw last week that was sung of David. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David, his ten thousands. Well, who are the ten thousands it's referring to? 
not only, but certainly primarily, Philistines. So as David hears this, he realizes he's fled from Saul right in the hands of others. So David was so fearful that he changes his behavior and starts to act like he's out of his mind. So the king, Achish, says something. He says, you see this man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? In essence, saying, I have plenty of my own issues here. I don't need outsiders as well adding to this. We see verse 12 of chapter 21 that David, when he heard these words of the men, he took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So it's interesting, this man who wasn't afraid of Goliath, who fought and killed Goliath, is now fearful of the king, who's not nearly as strong as Goliath. It seems that in David's fear, he's making one unwise choice after another. I mean, did he really think he was going to show up in Gath carrying Goliath's sword and then be like, welcome, we're glad you're here. And yet God is still faithful to David, the anointed one. God is faithful to his people, always faithful to us. David was also a, a writer of many of the Psalms. And some of the Psalms in the superscript were told when it was that David was writing the Psalms. One of those is Psalm 56 that we're told was written during this. While this is playing out, David is reflecting and writing psalms of praise. And here's what David says, Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In some ways, it's as if David's words, which are absolutely true, are wiser than actually his current actions are. As it is for us often, our, our lives aren't fully in line with our beliefs, but David is saying, help me to believe this. This is what I, what I want to believe. That when I'm afraid, I'll trust in you. Friends, notice the promise in this psalm is not that we won't have times when we'll be afraid. He doesn't say, God loves you so much, you will never be afraid in this life. No, he says, when I'm afraid. I will be afraid. We will be afraid at times in this life. But it's then that we put our trust in the Lord. Another psalm written this time, Psalm 34, verse 8. David says, Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Again, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him, not, not blessed is the one who never needs a refuge. The people who need a refuge are those who are in desperation, those who are in danger. And that's the good news. The promise of God is not a life free of difficulty, not, not free of many reasons to fear. But it is that God is a refuge to us through all of life. At the end of Psalm 34, Psalm 34 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be if you're a Christian, take refuge in the Lord by faith. In this life, there will be many reasons, often reasons, that we would potentially fear. Look to the Lord by faith. Take refuge in him. Trust in him. And be encouraged 
He, the Lord, is always with you. He is always faithful. We're not. He is. He is always loyal to his people. And as we trust the Lord, we want to choose not to take the path of ungodliness, to not not take the paths of the world, but, but walk in integrity as we trust in the Lord. David then flees one more time from Gath, and he goes and hides in this cave in Adullam. So here's the promised king hiding out in the cave. And yet even here, people are attracted to him. Look at verse 2. It says, And everyone who's in distress, and everyone who's in debt, and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. So the outsiders, the heartbroken, those crushed by sorrow and by debt, they came to David. Because apparently they had seen King Saul has nothing for us. We have no connections, we have no power, we have no money, we have no hope. We've heard of David and his exploits. Let's go and gather to him. Friend, doesn't that remind you of someone else? During Jesus' life and ministry, who was it that was so drawn to Jesus? As we watch his life in the gospel accounts, typically the powerful were threatened by him, opposed him. But the tax collectors, the sinners, the outsiders, the hurting, the sick, they flocked to Jesus. And Jesus welcomed his disciples. They're this kind of mixture of unimpressive men that he calls out. Tax collectors and fishermen. The gospel was good news that was transforming those who had nothing else. Those who are weighed down by life found hope in Jesus. And friends, it's always available to those who are humble enough to receive the invitation of Jesus. The beautiful words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Friends, that's what these, they're coming to David. They're heartbroken, weighed down, and David is their refuge. Now, it's certainly possible by God's grace that that the powerful can be saved. That is true. That's the good news of the gospel. But Jesus also cautioned us. It is when we're powerful, when we're strong, when we're, we're wealthy, it's hard for us to admit that we need a Savior. But it is when we're broken and we're weak, so often we will run to the Savior. And friends, as God's people... We want to welcome like David. We want to welcome like Jesus. So who's welcome at Hope Fellowship Church? Everyone who's in distress. Everyone who's in debt. Everyone who's bitter in soul. Everyone who has nowhere else to turn. That's who's most of all welcomed here. So, friend, if that's where you are today, maybe no one else knows the depth of the valley that you're in, the darkness of the night you find yourself in. Friend, know that you are welcomed here. And even more than welcomed by the people here, welcomed by Jesus, our Savior and King. And as a, as a church, friends, let, let's have open arms and hearts like that. Because the fact is, all of us faced an insurmountable debt. 
the debt of our sin that we could never pay ourselves. But Jesus Christ went to the cross to, to pay that debt for us, to take our debt and then give us his riches, his righteousness, his kingdom to us. And so it's remembering where we once were, debtors without hope, set free in Christ that makes us open the doors and say, debtors, most of all, welcome here, come here. Have your debt paid for. We then see that David took his parents to the neighboring land of Moab, and he asked the king there to care for them. And we're not told the specifics here, but it seems the reason that David chooses Moab is because his great-grandmother, Ruth, was from Moab. If you want to read more of the story of Ruth, you can read that in the book by that name. But there was a connection from Ruth. And so this is where I'll take my parents for safety. And here that fact provides a blessing for a future generation. Ruth had no idea that her own homeland would provide protection for her grandchildren. And friends, God often works across the generations in ways that we never see in our own lifetime. Sometimes we're the recipients of that. So, for instance, as our grandson grows older, at some point he may ask me if have the Cook family, our family, have they always been Christian? How far back does Christianity go in our family? And I'll tell him, no, in fact, it doesn't go a long way back. But my dad came to faith in Christ, first in a line in his family, and it forever has changed our family line. So whether his kids even know my dad, that line was changed as that faith was passed on. We as a church are recipients. People who love Jesus built and paid for this building. It was given to us. We didn't pay a dime for it. We're recipients of that grace. And even in a shorter window of this church that was started in 2003, so much of what happens here is a result of those in those first years who sacrificed so much, and, and very few of them are still here. They've moved on to other parts of the world. But we today are recipients of their faithful work, their sacrificial ministry, and their generosity. And we have been blessed by that. So sometimes we're the recipients, but sometimes others will be the recipients of your efforts. Now, very likely, you won't see them in your lifetime, but God still works in those. So, friend, if you're a parent, imagine with me someday your great-great-grandchildren, if God were so to bless, might be following Jesus, and partly because of your investment in the family. You might be the first Christian in your family, but a whole new heritage has started. And as you imperfectly have invested in your kids, and they'll imperfectly invest in their kids, through the generations, the gospel is known. But not only in a biological family, in the family of the church. Imagine the story of a, of a granddaughter, let's say, who, who one day asks her grandmother, how did you become a Christian? And this grandmother explained, years ago, I went to this church in Cambridge, where they read large portions of the Bible in sermons. And there for the first time, I studied the Bible. This woman met with me and read the Bible with me. I had so many questions. I wore her out with all the questions that I had. But she faithfully answered them. And I became a Christian years ago that day. Friend, who knows how God might use you in the life of another who come to saving faith that, that you may never know in this life. 
And yet God works faithfully through that. What an opportunity we have because of how faithfully our God works. Then finally, we also should note David's request. Look at verse 3. He says to the folks in Moab, let them stay with you till I know what God will do for me. David didn't know what the next steps were. He didn't know how difficult things were going to get. He knew this one thing, God had promised that he was going to be the king, but he didn't know how to get from here to there. So he was going to choose to live day by day, clinging to what he did know, because God is faithful, because God is working on his purposes, and he would fulfill his promises. But notice that David said, until I know what God will do for me. He doesn't say, until I know if God will do something for me. He didn't know what he was going to do, but he had confidence that his God was going to do for him. Friends, that's our lives in this world as well. We, we have God's promises in his word. We have a future promise of life with him, eternal in the new heavens and the new earth. But, but between here and there, we often wonder. We, we don't see clearly. But we don't have to wonder if God will work for us. If is off the table, but it is what God will do. We, we don't know what he will do, but he will do. Friend, he will do for you. He has been faithful to you. He will be faithful to you. He is always faithful to us. And that won't stop now. He will accomplish his purposes. But until then, we choose to trust in God's hand, trust in his providence in the world, believing that he's working in our lives. Because that's where we find ourselves today, trusting our loyal, always faithful God. And because of who he is, because of his faithfulness, we, we can embrace the costly path of following the one true, loyal, 